Welcome back to The Best Movies. And in this series, we're going to talk about the best feel-good movies of all time. I'm Ro Khan, and I host a daily four-hour radio show on WGN in Chicago. And he's Richard Roper, film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times and former co-host of Ebert and Roper. We are practicing social distancing, just so folks know. Ro is in a studio on the north side of the city. I'm on the south side of the city, so I hope people will bear with us. We've got a lot of technology going here. It feels a little bit like the moment in Apollo 13 when everything started to go wrong. But fortunately, you had Tom Hanks up in space and Ed Harris at Mission Control. Is that a preview of something that we might be talking about in a future episode? I think we might. So in this episode, we're going to look at comedies and musicals. Let's start with a generational favorite, National Lampoon's Animal House. Because you clowns have been on double secret probation since the beginning of this semester. Double secret probation? I think this situation absolutely requires a really futile and stupid gesture be done on somebody's part. We're just the guys to do it. We got to do something. Absolutely. You know what we got to do? Toga party. Toga! 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 I remember going to see this movie at the Evergreen Park Theater with my idiot buddies. We all looked like we had wandered off the set of Dazed and Confused with the mullet hair and the outfits of the time. And I remember waiting in line. There were lines outside the Evergreen Park Theater, and we were all sitting there like morons, drinking our low and brows. And I'll never forget a police officer coming up. And back, it was a little different back in the day because he just came up to us and he said, you know, you guys can't bring those beers in the theater. So drink them up, throw the bottles out, and get inside. I'm like, what a great time it was. But the film itself... It has so many great set pieces. I mean, of course, everybody remembers John Belushi, who had a relatively small role, but just knocked it out of the park. But everything about that frat life, and then all the little episodes, when they went on the road trip, when they had the toga party, There's every single scene in there is a comedy classic. I gave my love a cherry that had no stone. Sorry. And when I saw it for the first time, I was on a first movie date with this girl I had a massive crush on. So I was trying to act cool, but I was really hoping this is exactly what college was going to be like. There are certain scenes in that movie that would not see the light of day in modern times. The whole thing about going to the club. Do you mind if we dance with your dates? Why, no, not at all. Go right ahead. If I was in your shoes, I'd be uh, leaving. What a good idea. But even more troublesome, in retrospect, Roe, is the whole plot line about the romance between Pinto and the young girl. You've never made out with a girl before? No. <laughs> I mean, I've never done what I think we're going to do in a minute. I sort of did once, but I was That's drunk. okay, Larry. Neither have I. And besides... I lied to you, too. Oh, yeah? What about? I'm only 13. Which is used as a punchline in that movie, which not be a punchline in modern times. But you have to put all this kind of stuff in perspective. And the cast is terrific. Tim Matheson and Peter Riegert were the real stars of the movie. And they've had fine careers since then as character actors. Karen Allen. Who doesn't love Karen Allen, right? She was the best. Katie. No wonder why Boone took her back, even though she slept with Donald Sutherland. Didn't she also sleep with Indiana Jones? 
that's very true. And this was one of the first movies to do that thing at the end where they tell us what happened to all the characters. They had done it in other movies like American Graffiti, but almost in a more serious way. But at the end, we get the, you know, the epilogue, whatever happened to all these characters, including, of course, Senator Blatarsky. What? Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! Germans? Forget it, he's rolling. I always thought Animal House was intended as a satire of American graffiti. Yeah, that's a great point, because even though this movie came out in the late 70s, it's actually set in the early 60s when a lot of the National Lampoon writers from the magazine who then went on to great careers in radio and the movies, that's when they were in college. So it was loosely inspired by their experiences. And I remember hearing about when they were filming the movie, Landis kept the Delta House separate from the rich frat boy guys. So they actually didn't like each other in real life and was kind of doing that. And we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about one of the great comedic supporting performances of all time, John Vernon as Dean Wormer in a perfect world in a better world Rokan he should have been nominated for best supporting actor just for Mr. Blutowski zero point zero and since there are a lot of people over the last weeks and months who have been stuck in their own homes and every day seems the same there's Groundhog Day This is a film that did very well when it came out and got solid reviews, but it has grown in legend and reputation over the years to the point now where it's included on some of the list of the greatest movies of all time. And it's even been picked up by like Zen masters and philosophy teachers, uh, you know, the whole existential kind of thing going on here and what all the messages are. I mean, almost any faith or even if you don't have a formal religion, you can find so much spirituality in the idea of a man who is not a good person. And is forced to live the same day over and over again. And at first is freaked out by it. And then uses it for selfish means. But eventually reaches this place where he's a really, really great human being. Just a lovely film, Ro. And over the years, it's kind of become a punchline. Played always around Groundhog Day. And it seems to me that people aren't really watching it. They're picking up maybe between commercial breaks or something like that on basic cable. You really do have to sit down and watch this movie from beginning to end to get it. Even though it's set in Punxsutawney and there's Punxsutawney Phil in Pennsylvania, it was actually filmed in Woodstock, Illinois. And Woodstock has turned that into a cottage industry. They do you know great celebrations. I was lucky enough to spend some time with the late Harold Ramis who directed this film. In fact, he once filled in for Roger Ebert on Ebert and Roper as a guest co-host, and that was really fun talking movies with him. But I remember him talking about, you know, there was all these legendary stories about how difficult Bill Murray was on the set and almost ruining the production. He was just, he didn't know what this movie was about. He didn't believe in it. And Harold confirmed for me, those rumors were all true and then some. In fact, there was a moment where he finally went into Bill Murray's trailer and essentially said, if you don't come out here and get it together and start acting, I'm going to kick your ass. This is Doris. Her brother-in-law, Carl, owns this diner. She's worked here since she was 17. More than anything else in her life, she wants to see Paris before she dies. Oh, boy, what a... What are you doing? This is Debbie Kleiser and her fiancé, Fred. Do I know you? They're supposed to be getting married this afternoon, but Debbie is having second thoughts. What? Lovely ring. Kevin fever is set in. A lot of people just want to get outside. And what 
better escapist escapism could there be in all entertainment than Ferris Bueller's Day Off? What is so dangerous about a character like Ferris Bueller is he gives good kids bad ideas. Well, why should he get to skip school when everybody else has to go? Syphilitic meningitis. He never gets caught. This guy in my biology class said that if Ferris dies, he's giving his eyes to Stevie Wonder. Love this movie on this list because it's about a guy escaping the mundane, escaping the boredom of his day-in, day-out school life. I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. And then decides to go on the coolest springtime adventure you could possibly have with his best friend and the hottest girl in school. What are we going to do? The question isn't what are we going to do. The question is what aren't we going to do. Don't say we're not going to take the car home. Please don't say we're not going to take the car home. Please don't. If you had access to a car like this, would you take it back right away? Neither would I. Yeah, exactly. The immortal Mia Sarah. Oh, my God. Who was not in love with Mia Sarah as Sloan Peterson in this movie? And I think a key bit of casting here, obviously, Ro, is Matthew Broderick playing Ferris Bueller. Because when you take a little bit of a step back and you look at Ferris Bueller, he's a little shit, you know? And, he, and you know, you understand why Ed Rooney has it in for this guy a little bit. Nobody likes Ferris more than Ferris. But, of course, because Matthew Broderick is so likable and so empathetic, and we see that Ferris obviously has a big heart. And I just love the journey of this. And people have claimed that I've said it was the greatest movie of all time. I haven't said that. I have said it's one of my favorite movies of all time and just like Groundhog Day has a bigger message I believe Ro that Ferris Bueller's Day Off does as well because it's really Cameron's Day Off Ferris Bueller doesn't need a day off he's got the life he's living in a great home loving parents Eh, his sister's a little bit of pain in the ass but that always happens he's got the best girlfriend he's the most popular kid in school Cameron is the one who's depressed who's a hypochondriac who's near suicidal almost and has terrible and serious issues with his father. My old man pushes me around. I never say anything. Well, he's not the problem. I'm the problem. And in fact, in one of the genius bits of production design, Cameron wears a Detroit Red Wings jersey throughout this movie, which would be the kind of thing a contrarian kid would do in Chicago just because he doesn't feel like he fits in. So throughout the movie... Ferris is trying to show Cameron all the great things in life to snap him out of his funk. Cameron, what have you seen today? Nothing good. <laughs> nothing, no, nothing, this, what do you mean nothing good? We've seen everything good, we've seen the whole city. Uh-huh. We went to a museum, we saw priceless works of art, we ate, we ate pancreas. As we're looking at the best feel-good comedies, another John Hughes film set in Chicago, Uncle Buck. John Candy, believe it or not, was only 40 years old when we lost him. And you think about how great he was in Stripes, in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and of course, as Uncle Buck. I mean, he's just perfect for the role of the ne'er-do-will uncle who gets called in for emergency babysitting duty. And I love when he gets a call because he's like, how old are the kids now anyway? He hasn't seen those nephews and nieces. And of course, one of the kids is actually Macaulay Culkin, pre-Home Alone, and Gabby Hoffman, who's grown up and become quite a successful actress. But And, and then, of course, you got Amy Madigan as the girlfriend. So you get this wonderful cast and just really flat-out funny stuff. Everybody loves to have an Uncle Buck. 
I just love John Candy. I think this role is just beautifully suited for him. Where do you live? In the city. Do you have a house? Apartment. Owner rent? Rent. What do you do for a living? Lots of things. Where's your office? I don't have one. How come? I don't need one. Where's your wife? Don't have one. How come? It's a long story. Do you have kids? No, I don't. How come? It's an even longer story. Are you my dad's brother? What's your record for consecutive questions asked? 38. I'm your dad's brother, all right. You have much more hair than you know, so my dad. How nice of you to notice. And we mentioned that this is a John Hughes movie, and at one point, John Hughes talked about the fact that he kind of envisioned everybody in this universe living in the same neighborhood. So in other words, Uncle Buck might have been driving down a street where the home that Steve Martin's character from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles lived, and maybe just around the corner is Molly Ringwald's home from 16 Candles, and Ferris was right around the corner, and some of these kids might have even gone to school with each other, but they never met the kids from the Breakfast Club because they didn't get detention. So if people are stuck in their homes for a long period of time and they've got kids who are restless, a John Hughes Film Festival is not a bad way to spend a night or two. One of the things I love about John Hughes films is they almost always do have a sweet moment. I mean, there's a lot of, there's some, there's some physical comedy and there's sometimes some, you know, some mean-spirited humor, but there's almost always a warm story, whether it's a romance or in the case of Uncle Buck, a family story. And he was also somebody, Roe, who early on before movies were doing this on a regular basis, he really put a lot of work into the soundtrack selections play pop songs from the time, sometimes not really well-known songs, but he was really into that and considered music to be almost like another character in the films. And arguably the funniest satire ever, Airplane. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Zucker, Abram Zucker, the comedic factory. The timing of this movie in 1980 made it even funnier because for the last decade we had had all these very serious big epic production disaster movies exactly you had airport and then airport with the 747 and the airport with the concord and the only guy who was in all those movies was petroni (laughs) and yeah towering inferno poseidon remember shelly winters had a swim because she was a former swim champion you could always tell the big disaster movies because they have little boxes of the giant cask Gene Martin, Jacqueline Bissett, Lloyd Bridges. Airplane makes fun of all this. It's like I took the wrong week to quit drinking. And the interesting thing about this movie, it's almost a shot-for-shot remake of a movie called Zero Hour, which was done in the 1950s, and it was about a food poisoning on an airplane. Mm. A couple of years later, it was remade as a television movie starring Roddy McDowell. Wow, that's fantastic. I'll never forget, they all got poisoned on chicken pot pie, and I've not had it since. (laughs) Oh, my God chicken pot pie how dare you an airplane again is one of those movies where it's all about those comedic set pieces right i mean the kind of zany humor it's like i picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines that's very national lampoon very saturday night live but the zucker abram zucker factory they had their own way of doing things so they they would spoof the classic thing about the singing nun or the terminally ill child and then of course none other than june cleaver barbara billingsley has a very memorable cameo oh stewardess I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain and he wants to know if you can help him. All right. Would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's going to catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama didn't raise no dummies. I duck a rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. And again, if you're just showing this movie to your kids for the first time and they really love it, they may also love Naked Gun, which is from the same producers. Like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. And speaking of screwball comedies from 1980, Caddyshack. 
Caddyshack is one of the most quoted comedy films of all time, and in just a very few scenes, Bill Murray has one of the most iconic roles ever as greenskeeper Carl Spackler. This crowd has gone deadly silent. Cinderella story, out of nowhere, a former greenskeeper now about to become the Masters champion. <clears throat> it looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole! Also, great performances by Chevy Chase. Ted Knight, who everybody knew from the Mary Tyler Moore show, but didn't realize he had dramatic range, or in this case, dramatic comedic range. There's a lot of, uh, well, badness in the world today. I see it in court every day. I've sentenced boys younger than you to the gas chamber. Didn't want to do it. Felt I owed it to them. Yeah, exactly. The judge is the classic comedic villain who doesn't know he's in a comedy, which goes all the way back to the Marx Brothers. Remember Margaret Dumont? You always had to have that foil who was integral. Dean Wormer, the character in Animal House. They don't know they're in comedies, and that, that's why they're so invaluable, Rowan. i got to ask you, you're a golfer. I'm not much of a golfer. Mini putts about as far as I go, but you're on the course a lot. I can't, I can't even imagine how many times you've had people doing imitations. <laughs> There's in a day that goes by in a country club where that movie isn't quoted or somebody walks into the pro shop and goes to get the naked lady tees. It's just endless in the golfing world. It will never go away. It's the most iconic film of all time for golfers. Yeah, and, and again, loosely based on some of the Murray Brothers' experiences, right? Ironically, I was at a golf tournament a couple of years ago, and there's always an award ceremony after they're over. And the Murray brothers were all there. They all went on stage. They took questions and gave answers about the making of the film, what was real, what was not real. And at the end, they introduced the real Maggie O'Hooligan, the girl who thought she was pregnant. All right, well, I'm still willing to marry you. Oh, yeah? Yeah. We're takes for nothing. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, speaking of quotable lines, I hear people always saying, you'll get nothing and like it. I don't even know if they realize that's from Caddyshack. In addition to all of that great stuff, you got Rodney Dangerfield, who was having that great renaissance after years as kind of a workmanlike traveling journeyman comic, and he just steals the movie. <laughs> hey, orange balls, I'll have a box of those. Give me a box of those naked lady tees, and give me two of those. Give me six of those. Oh, this is the worst-looking hat I ever saw. Well, you buy a hat like this, I'll bet you get a free bowl of soup, huh? Oh, it looks good on you, though. <laughs> Those lines are just so great. The big boat and his confrontations with uh, with uh, Ted Knight as well. All, all terrific stuff. It's the reason why this film is just generationally popular. That started Rodney Dangerfield's renaissance. And, and actually led to him starring in a number of his own comedies. Because nobody was talking about giving Rodney Dangerfield a movie in 1975. But a few years later, it was all of a sudden, let's do Easy Money. Hey, he goes back to school. And, and he was great in those. He, was, he just played Rodney, but nobody was better than Rodney at being Rodney. So Saturday Night Live had its own influence, but so did SCTV from Canada. And you see a lot of those cast members in our next movie, Best in Show. This is what they call the mockumentary. Christopher Guest is the master at these. People know maybe A Mighty Wind, which was about the folk scene, and of course, Rob Reiner with Spinal Tap, which he directed it, but featured a lot of the SCTV cast. And people might not remember Best in Show, but it is a spot-on, so to speak, pun intended, 
parody of the competitive dog industry, the dog showing, you know, the Westminster and all that stuff you see. And it follows the various humans and their dogs. And the cast is amazing. you got like Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. They're Jerry and Cookie Fleck. They've got a Norwich Terrier. And then Christopher Guest himself is Harlan Pepper. And the cast just goes on and on. Michael McKean, Parker Posey, Jane Lynch, Larry Miller, the great comic. Ed Begley Jr., Fred Willard, and remember the commentators were so great in that. Let me ask you something. This may seem like a silly question. To get a, a French dog, a Chinese dog, a German dog, do they all bark the same? They all sound the same when they, you know, woof, is it or is it a different language? Different dogs have different uh, intonations. And it doesn't matter the, uh, the, the country, the boundaries doesn't make any difference there. No. Producers could make an actual documentary about this, and it would be almost the same movie. Yeah, the Christopher Guest School of Humor, it's very, very smart and insightful and arch and dry. It's its kind of the polar opposite of some of the National Lampoon stuff like Animal House, which goes big with the comedy, with the slapstick and the nudity and the language and the big set pieces. This is more of a movie where you smile throughout. It kind of applies to all of the Christopher Guest films. You know, they're kind of loving tributes to the genre they're spoofing. I like to think that uh, Cookie and I work as a team, although I do nothing. She does all she does all the work with Winky. I've always wondered if Best in Show is to the dog show people what Caddyshack is to golfers. I'm not sure they have the sense of humor to appreciate this film. I don't think I ever could get used to being probed and prodded. I, I told my proctologist once, hey, why don't you take me out to dinner and a movie sometime, you know? Yes, yes. Um, I remember you said that last yes, year. Yes. Yeah. And for our last comedy, let's go back to the people made famous from Saturday Night Live, Eddie Murphy, the Nutty Professor. Oh, Hercules, 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 Hercules. Do my tablet and stop speed up. Yeah, this is the remake, reboot, reimagine, if you will, of the Jerry Lewis classic, which, hey, you got to give Jerry Lewis credit for creating that character. But I prefer the Eddie Murphy version from 1996. This is the kind of film where I get so worked up, you know about this, at the Academy because they don't recognize great comedic performances. How does Eddie Murphy not get nominated for Best Actor here as Sherman Klump? He played not only, of course, the... Sherman Club character, who's the overweight, sweet, shy guy, and then Buddy Love, the alter ego, who's the slick, you know, handsome jerk. But then he's got multiple roles, and I would argue that the dinner table scene is the best flatulence scene in the history of cinema. Yeah, you know I can go all night. I hope you fought to your asshole falls. Out. <laughs> oh, baby, too. See what you made me do? God damn it, I messed up my pain. It's also the best scene that only features two actual actors with six people around the table. This movie's also so smart and interesting, and like a lot of great comedies, there's some kind of serious moments there. Jada Pinkett is one of her best roles as the romantic interest, because of course, she actually likes Sherman Klump. She's not really that much into the jerk that he becomes. So it's really interesting to see that dynamic, that dichotomy. So a very funny movie, but also a lot of heart. And the comedy so smart. And at the time in Hollywood, there was no bigger star than Eddie Murphy. Was right in that zone in the middle of about a 20-year run there that it started, as you mentioned, when he was very, very young on Saturday Night Live. And then 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cop. And The Nutty Professor, I still say, might be his best performance ever. Okay, so those are some of the best feel-good comedies. Now let's talk about feel-good musicals. Let's start with 1973's Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who are you 
bro, I can't tell you how much I love this film and how many times I've seen it and also listened to the original London Broadway recording. 1973, I was a kid. I actually had a Catholic school education and upbringing. And I, it was all positive, and I know there are a lot of problems with the church, but I had awesome nuns teaching me, real cool priests, and they really embraced this as a way to kind of connect with the kids, as we used to say, with the hippie generation, because Jesus Christ Superstar, of course, was a modern take on the story of Jesus Christ Superstar. You know, Jesus was 33, according to the New Testament. Ted Neely's 107. He's still playing Jesus, and he still rocks on stage. And then, of course, Carl Edwards as Judas, who was actually in one of the original Broadway productions, and then Yvonne Elman, who just had such an angelic voice. The music here is really cool. This film is directed by Norman Jewison, which was an interesting choice because he's a legend, but he brought kind of an old-school director's mentality to this. He had directed films like Fiddler on the Roof, The Cincinnati Kid, In the Heat of the Night, and he had the great conceit that he said, let's film this as if... This is a traveling troupe that's putting on a production of Jesus Christ Superstar. So we see them arriving in the bus at the beginning of the movie and then leaving at the end, kind of acknowledging that, yes, while this is respectful and kind of faithful to the original story, there's a little bit of camp in it as well. Die! If you want to! You innocent puppet! The music alone, if you're not familiar with this film, will blow you away. Yeah, it's a, it is a rock opera, and you know people have their opinions about Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber as being populists or whatever. They put on great shows. They've been responsible for eight zillion Broadway and London classic musicals. We forgive them for Cats. We just have to revel in the beauty of Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> and I have to say this aside, bro. Even though this is more about the original Broadway production. Uh, the original Jesus was Ian Gillen. When you're listening to the soundtrack for Jesus Christ Superstar, not from the movie, but from the London recording, and it's so awesome because he was also the lead singer for Deep Purple. So at the same time he was singing as Jesus, he was also singing about being a highway star and smoke on the water. It's so awesome. And here's another musical with a religious twist, Blues Brothers. <laughs> I, you know, I never thought of it, but you're right. The actual plot of the Blues Brothers is they got to raise the money to save the orphanage. If not, because that nun had the magical ability to have their desk actually come right up to him so she could slap him with the ruler. That was one of the great satires of The Exorcist. People don't think of this film as that, but that one scene alone is. You're the only one. And this is a big, almost deliberately bloated movie. I mean, they throw everything out there, and that was a lot of the fun with it. And we had Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, who were so great together, and so many great, memorable lines. 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. It. And who can forget again, my favorite John Candy. Who wants an orange whip? Orange whip? Orange whip? Three orange whips. Cab Calloway. Hey folks, here's a story about Minnie the Moocha. She was a low down here gucha. And one of the all-time great musical numbers, row is Aretha Franklin, who says, You better think. You and I grew up in Chicago. The summer of 1979, downtown Chicago and the southern suburbs were shut down for the production. 
some of the most memorable action sequences of all time, of course, in Daly Plaza. The chase that goes through the mall, that was the Dixie Square Mall in Harvey, Illinois, a south suburb very close to where I grew up. And it, the commentary from Belushi as they're going, and Ackroyd, as they're driving through the mall is priceless. Disco pants and haircuts. Yeah. Baby clothes. This place has got everything. Pure One Imports. And this was a John Landis big budget film starring two guys from Saturday Night Live who were just reprising a single bit that they'd done on Saturday Night Live. So I don't think a lot of people were taking the production of this particularly seriously, including John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, who were legendarily out at the clubs doing radio shows. And really making this their summer vacation in Chicago. Yeah, they even set up a little speakeasy behind Second City in Chicago's north side neighborhood of Old Town. It was kind of a private dive bar for people in the know. And I got to say this too, Ro, you know, Belushi and Aykroyd, they were very sensitive to the fact that a lot of people were starting to criticize these characters for appropriating blues music. And because they had a couple of albums that were outselling anything that actual blues musicians had ever done. And I think one of the ways they wanted to you know, show that they were really paying tribute to these great artists was by putting so many of them in this movie. Come on, baby, don't you wanna go? And here's a movie perfect for the whole family because every mom and grandmother fell in love with John Travolta in Greece. I got chills, they're multiplying, and I'm losing This is another movie with a great Chicago connection because Greece actually started as a very small musical in Chicago, written by a couple of guys based on their experiences growing up in the 50s, and then it became this ginormous multi-million dollar hit with Travolta and Olivia Newton-John and yes, they all looked like they were way too old for high school and the teachers were like Sid Caesar who was 112 but who cares, the music was fantastic This is a generational comedy musical, people of all ages can just dig it and they even did the cool thing at the beginning where Frankie Valli did the theme from Greece, which was not in the original stage production, but was done specifically for the movie, and they had the cool animated opening just to get us in the mood. Here's a feel-good musical you might have forgotten about, Mr. Holland's Opus. Glenn Holland had a lifetime of plans to write a symphony. That's what I wanted to do the rest of my life and to raise a family radio city music hall is proud to present coltrane gershwin holland but before he can fulfill his dreams he'll have to face the music it was good this is a film that arrived with not a lot of fanfare. I mean, Richard Dreyfuss, of course, was well-established as one of our great actors, but the title was sort of like, what is this about? And I think at first people thought, is this based on some sort of true story? And it wasn't. It's just a really cool story about a guy who wanted to become a big-time music conductor, ended up being a high school teacher, and it turns out that was his opus, the effect he had on generations of students. Playing music is supposed to be fun. It's about heart. It's about feelings and 
moving people and something beautiful and being alive. And it's not about notes on a page. This may seem like an odd choice for a feel-good movie, but it really is, because it's got a great message, and the music is spectacular, including John Lennon's Beautiful Boy. Yeah, there are some very, very touching moments in this film. For people who haven't seen it, sorry, but we are going to talk about plot developments. I mean, here's a music instructor, a man who lives for music, and his son is deaf, and he has trouble sometimes in that relationship, but they eventually come to this loving understanding. There's almost a Forrest Gump uh, element to this story as well, Ro, because it takes us through many, many years, the 60s and the 70s. So there's archival footage of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech in Woodstock and the Vietnam War and various things that were happening in real life that were mirroring what was going on in this fictional story. You recently talked to Richard Dreyfus, and he's made dozens upon dozens, over 100 films in his career, and he actually went out of his way to talk about what Mr. Holland's opus has meant to him and his fans, right? He talked about how this film and his role continue to resonate. I was very, very taken by how deeply that film impacted on so many different cultures within our culture. The death and the music and teaching and all of this. About four months after the film had opened, mm. uh, I turned on the radio to this national talk show. And they were still talking about the movie, which is not the norm. And the film had just arrived and stayed, and I was incredibly proud of it. We're talking about feel-good movies, but some of these musicals do take on very serious subjects, but they're also ultimately uplifting and inspirational, and Rent from 2005 certainly fits in that category. 525,600 minutes, how do you measure a year in the life? The music is so great and so of its time. And this is really cool. Anthony Rapp, who plays the character of Mark, he originated that role in the stage production. So it was so cool to see him in the movie role because more often than not, when a project makes the transition from Broadway to the movies, all of a sudden the Broadway actors are pushed aside for movie actors. So it was cool to see Anthony Rapp in this and Rosario Dawson. Terrific cast and the music. Yeah, there are some really funny numbers some very, very sad numbers, but then there's like La Vie Bohème where they're just all celebrating life, one of the most uplifting songs you're ever going to hear. To being an Aussie for once instead of a damn La Vie Bohème And we meet Adina Menzel for the first time. Or as John Travolta from Greece would say, and for feel-good musicals, let's go into the Wayback Machine from 1964, The Beatles, A Hard Day's Night. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night, I should be sleeping like a log. The Beatles are playing the Beatles here, right, Ro? They were. The Beatles, they couldn't get away from their own personas. They couldn't walk in public. They couldn't go anywhere on the planet Earth, including India, without getting sworn. And that was the genius of this movie. Instead of saying, okay, let's have them all be secret agents or some, some, some madness like that, let's just play off of that. And it turns out, of course, they all had those unique styles. Paul McCartney was very, very funny. Ringo Starr, the comedic foil. They all had their, their personas on display. And this, this movie, too, is pretty much the invention of the music video. 
for sure, because it's all lyrical interludes. Whatever the action is, it's covered by one of their songs, which, of course, then got parodied by the American television show The Monkees, which also became a big hit using the same conceit. And we cannot go without mentioning the great Wilfred Brambell as John McCartney, Paul's grandfather, who just steals the movie. I thought I was supposed to be getting a change of scenery, and so far I've been in a train and a room, and a car and a room, and a room and a room. Well, maybe that's all right for a bunch of powdered geegaws like you lot, but I'm feeling decidedly straight-jacketed. It was also significantly important in the trajectory of the Beatles because you got to meet each individual character. You got to meet the clowns, and you got to meet the quiet one, George Harrison. That's a great point because, of course, this was in a time where the Beatles didn't have Instagram feeds or video blogs or all that kind of stuff. We saw them on the Ed Sullivan show or maybe at a little snippet of a press conference or if you were lucky enough to see them in concert. So this really was a chance for the adoring public to get to know these great, great musicians and their personalities. And unlike the movies from the late 50s and early 60s that featured Elvis Presley, also used as promotional tools, you didn't see them in some other character. You saw them as themselves. Yeah, Elvis was always playing some guy named Rick or Steve, who was a race car driver or some kind of dude that falls in love with a nun, played by Mary Tyler Moore. And finally, we're going to feature a musical. And even though we're calling this a feel-good movie series, there are some pretty dark moments. But still, one of the best and most compelling movies of the 80s, Prince's Purple Rain. That's very true because the Prince character, who's just known as the kid, his parents are in this horrific relationship. His father's very abusive, and there's a lot of dark moments there. Uh, the other thing about Prince that I think we need to stress here, Rose, he was one of the greatest musicians and performers of all time. I never meant to call you he could not act his way out of a purple velour suit. So the director, Albert Bagnoli, kind of figured out the best way to tell this story was to have the music really tell the story and to keep his dialogue to a minimum. It launched a number of careers, too. Apollonia had a short-lived but fairly successful career. But a performance from that movie that will never be forgotten, Morris Day and the Time. Classic scene-stealing comedic role from Morris Day, who was great as the kid's rival and foil. He actually is a real natural comedic actor. But you talk about feel-good, Row, in the middle of a film that, yeah, does have its serious moments. When Morris Day and the Time are performing Jungle Love, you will get off the couch. You cannot not dance to that song. In episode two of the best feel-good movies, we're going to look at biopics, romantic comedies, and sports movies. Thanks, as always, for listening and all the good reviews we've been getting. We do want to encourage people to subscribe and leave us their feedback, especially for this series, as we'd love to hear about your favorite feel-good movies. And who knows, you might hear us talking about them in subsequent episodes. The Best Movies is proudly produced in association with the Chicago Sun-Times, and tell your friends they can find us wherever they find their favorite podcasts. See you next time. Ha, 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 ha.